This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Progressive Insurance, where customers can save an average of over $750 when they switch and save. Visit Progressive.com to get your car insurance quote. It only takes about seven minutes. National annual average auto insurance savings by new customers surveyed in 2019. Potential savings will vary. Check it out, Progressive.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, like Plato, C.S. Lewis believed that the human soul was made up of three parts. The head, which is the rational, reason-driven part of you. The belly, which is your appetites and base instincts. And the chest, the seat of virtue-seeking sentiments and well-tuned emotions. In order for your head to make your decisions, particularly the decision to live a virtuous life, rather than your decisions being driven by your belly, the head needs the aid of the chest, of right feeling. A few months ago, we had Michael Ward on the show to talk about why C.S. Lewis felt that modern life was making men without chest. Today, I talked to a guest who can shed some light on what Lewis thought was needed to build that chest back up. His name is Lewis Marcos, and he's a professor of English, as well as the lecturer of the Great Courses course, The Life and Writings of C.S. Lewis. At the start of our conversation, Lou gives us some background on Lewis's life, including his conversion to Christianity, and how the nature of that conversion influences thinking on how to pursue virtue more broadly. We then talk about Lewis's philosophical argument for there being a universal moral order, and why the chest is so vital for staying grounded in it. We spend the rest of our discussion unpacking the three ways Lewis believed the chest could be educated. Reading stories and myths, rejecting chronological snobbery to learn from the past and developing friendships that inspire excellence. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash educating the chest. All right, Lou Marcos, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So you are an expert on the life and works of C.S. Lewis. You've written several books about his his works. You're a professor of English where you, you teach a lot about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien as well. You did a great courses lecture about C.S. Lewis. That's how I discovered you. I'm curious, like what drew you to spending your academic career studying the works of C.S. Lewis? Okay, now I got to tell you, Brett, I'm 57 years old. So when I was in you know graduate and undergraduate school, there were no classes on Lewis or Tolkien. I mean, nobody did that. That was just a lifelong love that I had. Interestingly, I grew up and came to know Christ in the Greek Orthodox Church. But in high school, our priest, who used the phrase born-again Christian of himself, this is back in the 70s and 80s, he actually gave us, when we graduated from one level of Sunday school to the next, a copy of Screwtape Letters and a copy of Mere Christianity. And so it was always something I was interested in. It's something I always read on my own. But again, nobody offered classes in it. And then the teaching company, The Great Courses, brought me out to do a series on literary criticism, what what, what was called Plato to postmodernism. And they really liked it. And they said, we want you to do another series. What can you do? And I said, well, what about Homer? That's already been done. What about Greek tragedy? Already been done. What about Roman history? Already, everything was done. And they said, well, I always liked C.S. Lewis. And they said, do it. So I went home and spent an entire year rereading every single thing by C.S. Lewis, taking notes all over the place, reading secondary sources, just kind of made myself an expert. And then I did the series and it did so well that it led to a cover article in Christianity Today. And that led to my first book, Lewis Agonistes. And so I'm just constantly reading and writing book reviews of 
everything on C.S. Lewis. So, and I love being a Lewis scholar because it means I speak for every denomination out there, every kind of group for classical Christian schools. Uh, and even though I now am a Baptist, I would call myself an evangelical. I really think of myself as a mere Christian uh, in, in, in the sort of tradition of C.S. Lewis. And, you know, Brett, most, most strong believers nowadays will tell you that C.S. Lewis is one of their role models. But I'm a lucky guy. I get to have him as a double role model because I'm an English professor. And so he's been my role model as an English professor, as well as a Christian and an apologist and a lover of literature. And so he's influenced me in so many different ways. And I've been able to speak in Oxford several times, publish books and whatnot. And it's just the riches of Lewis are inexhaustible. Tomorrow, I'm driving up to Shreveport, Louisiana to do an entire weekend on C.S. Lewis for an Episcopal church because there's so much richness in here. And Lewis is not only a great model as a writer, but as a person as well. And maybe we'll talk about that. So I kind of came to it from a different direction, but it's been something that's drawn together so much of my faith and my um, career and all the things that I do. So you mentioned when you were in college, there, there weren't any classes about C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. Has that changed? Are there now, is, are oh, they taken, oh, yes. are they taken seriously? Now, oh yeah. People now can get, you know, PhDs writing a thesis on C.S. Lewis. I hear from a lot of those people all the time. Uh, okay. You know, Lewis answered every single letter that he was sent and the collected letters of C.S. Lewis is 3,500 pages of small print. I'm not a snail mail guy, but everybody that emails me gets an email back and I do a lot of correspondence and I hear from a lot of people that are taking classes and writing a thesis and the books that are coming out. It, it's just wonderful. It's just a, an embarrassment of riches, as they say. And of course, I myself teach a class in Narnia. I teach a class in the Lord of the Rings. And I also teach a class on Lewis's apologetics. We look at his uh, you know, nonfiction and we study that as well. And again, there, there, there's so much there that we need to hear in our day and age. And of course, you know, a lot of people still, you know, the, the, the scholars look down on Lewis. But I'll tell you this, Brett, I'm somebody who teaches the great books from the Greeks to today. And the more you study the tradition, the more you know your Homer and Virgil and Dante and Milton and Greek tragedy and Shakespearean tragedy, the more you know philosophy, the more you will respect C.S. Lewis because he carries the entire Judeo-Christian Greco-Roman legacy in his bones. And so the more I learn the more I respect Lewis and see how much he has synthesized and brought together for us. So let's talk about Lewis's early life and how it influenced or may have influenced his later thought and work. He was born in Ireland. A lot of people don't know that. He was Irish. In 1898, when he was about nine years old, his mother died. Did this early death of his mother shape Lewis's thinking and work later on in his life? It, it was devastating for him. And like I said, almost everybody takes for granted Lewis is you know British or English, but he is Irish. He grew up in Belfast. Now, today we call that Northern Ireland because it's two places, right? But back then it was still one place, but there was lots of civil war going on. And the amazing thing about Lewis that I respect so much is even though he grew up in the Church of England and was a Protestant, you never see any sort of anti-Catholicism in his work. And that would be easy because he saw the struggles and the fights between Protestant and Catholic in Ireland, but he stayed away from that. But it's it's important that he grew up in Ireland because I think it it increased his imagination. He did have a Irish nanny who told him stories, right? His parents were big readers and there were books everywhere. And he and his brother Warren, he was three years older, were allowed to read anything. They created fantasy worlds. But when his mother died, he was nine, just almost 10 years old. 
it devastated him. He was always closer to his mother than his father. And, you know, he, he prayed. I mean, he, he grew up, he was, you know, in, in, in the Anglican church. But when his mother died and he prayed and prayed and nobody seemed to hear, and then his father sent him off to boarding schools that he absolutely hated. One of them was run by a man who later was basically declared insane and incarcerated. And all of these things slowly moved Lewis away from his early faith until he rejected it altogether and became an atheist and wanted nothing to do with it. But the seeds had been planted and they would bear fruit later on in his life. Okay, so he embraced atheism early on in his life and it was basically that that experience of losing his mother and just just experiencing a hard life and not feeling any divinity there. Also, what a lot of people don't know about Lewis, along with J.R. Tolkien, is they both fought in World War I, which was a war that made a lot of people jaded and cynical about life. How did that experience of fighting in World War I shape Lewis's worldview? It really did. Now, by the time he went there, he was already an atheist. And he said with pride, even when the fighting was the worst, I never deigned to pray, by which he was saying, there can be atheists in foxholes, is what he's sort of saying. But there is one thing he did like from the war. He didn't like the waste of it and all that sort of stuff, but it did increase his sense of camaraderie, of the importance of male friendship. And hopefully we'll talk about this in The Art of Manliness. It showed him this idea of sort of we few, we happy few against the world. Now, like a lot of people that fought in World War I, uh, he didn't really talk about it much afterwards. But it certainly shaped him. He saw the evil that happens, how we can lose any sense of a common sense of decency and morality. Tolkien was the one who fought at the famous Battle of the Somme. Lewis was in Arras, France, which wasn't quite as bloody, but still was very bloody. Lewis probably would have died in the war if he had not been injured by what we call friendly fire. And he actually carried shrapnel in his bones from the rest. Something that people don't know about Lewis, as an Irish citizen, Lewis could have gotten out of the draft and he was not a manly person in the sense of a soldier and whatnot. He was very fumbly. He wasn't very good at sports, but he felt that it was his duty to be a part of this. And so he could have gotten out of it, but he went. But it's only because he fought in World War I that he got into Oxford. Lewis was absolutely brilliant in anything having to do with literature or philosophy or history, but he was terrible at math and terrible with numbers. And he never would have passed the sort of British version of the SAT. But because he was a veteran when he came back, they waived the math test and he got into Oxford and proved to be one of their best students of all time, One what they call a triple first, which is very rare. And so World War I actually helped to secure him a place in Oxford where he went on to learn the things he did and to influence the world. What did he study at Oxford? Well, what you study, this is sort of program that you do there. And basically, it focuses first on languages. So it's very heavily based, not only on Greco-Roman literature, but Greek and Latin and learning. You learn Old English, you learn Middle English. Of course, you learn French and whatnot as well. But he studied all the ancients. He studied ancient and up to modern philosophy. And he also studied the literature from Chaucer until about the Romantics and Victorians. So he, he was well-versed in literature and language and philosophy. And he almost might have become a philosophy professor, but there was a problem with the job and he went back and did another one in literature. And thank God he did that because Lewis is a literary writer who is 
sort of informed by philosophy. And that's one of the ones that, things that makes him so great. If he had been a philosophy writer informed by literature, I don't think he would have had the impact that he had. Literature really was his first love. And he saw the world through that lens, but he was grounded enough in philosophy that he could write a book like The Abolition of Man, which is a great philosophical work, as well as literary and apologetic. When he was at Oxford, this is when he met Tolkien? Yes, yeah, when he was there. Now, he had, you know, he, he had had a private tutor before, a man named Kirkpatrick. He was nicknamed the Great Knock because he was an atheist and he was what's, what's called an empiricist. If I can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, hear it, it doesn't exist. All I want is facts. All I want is logic. He's sort of a modern-day David Hume. Now, he was an atheist, and Lewis was an atheist, and this guy, Kirkpatrick, trained him not only in languages but in logic, and he made Lewis's mind absolutely systematic and logical. But here's the wonderful story, Brett. When later on Lewis became a believer, he did not throw away what the atheist Kirkpatrick had taught him. Instead, he took all of that logic and reason and rhetoric and he baptized it. And it's one of the reasons why he is such a great apologist. And again, he he was this great person and he was in teaching at Oxford and he met Tolkien because he'd been brought over to Oxford and both of them were very, very committed not only to literature, but to language. I mean, like literally learning Greek and Latin and old English and all of these things, very grounded in that, more so than Americans are today. And they found that even though at this point, Lewis was still an atheist, Tolkien was a very committed Catholic, but they shared a great love for Norse literature, for the sagas, for the heroes, all of Ragnarok, all of that stuff. He loved it. And Tolkien was a great starter of groups. He'd been part of a group called the TCBS. He always wanted groups of male friends that got together and fought and tried to to bring society up, to focus on the good, the true, and the beautiful. And when he met Lewis, Tolkien had already started a club called the Colbiters or the Colbatars. And it was called that because the Vikings would sit so close to the fire when they told stories, it would be like they were biting the coals in the fire. Anyway, the, the, the role or the reason for being of the Colbiters or Colbatars was to get together and read all the Norse sagas in the original Old Norse. And finally, they disbanded the group because they read through all of them. But they got together, and Lewis knew a lot of those languages. And again, there was a sort of love of, of manly courage, of, of duty, of responsibility, all of this sort of stuff, but with a flair for the literary. So these are like whatever literary soldiers, if you will. And that cemented their friendship. But again, Lewis was still not a believer. Now, slowly through the intervention of a man named Owen Barfield, Lewis slowly became a theist, a believer in God. But he did not yet believe Jesus was God. What was stopping him? Well, Lewis, like myself, was a lover of mythology. I just wrote a book on mythology, a lover of all that. And he was a big fan of a book called The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Fraser was the Joseph Campbell of his day, a comparative mythologist, a comparative anthropologist who would look at all the different stories of all the different tribal groups and try to make comparisons between them. And Fraser came up with a character who would eventually be known as the Corn King. And it turns out that throughout sort of ancient cultures and ancient religion, there's a certain archetypal character who keeps popping up, a sort of son of the God who comes down to earth and 
you know, does these great things and is usually killed violently, but returns seasonally. Now, it's not exactly the same thing as the death and resurrection. It's more of a seasonal myth. He's called the corn king because when a British person says corn, he means wheat, right? Because there was no corn. Corn came from here, from the modern, the new world. But the corn king is a sort of mytho-legendary figure whose constant cycle of life and death and rebirth gives fruition to the earth, makes the corn grow. Now, if you are a Greek, you call your corn king Adonis or Bacchus. If you're Egyptian, you call him Osiris. If you're Babylonian, you call him Tammuz. That name appears in the Bible. If you are Persian, you call him Mithras. If you are a Norseman, you call him Balder. All of these stories. Now, Lewis just took for granted that Jesus was just the corn king version of the myth that the Hebrews had. And then one day when Lewis was 32 years old, right in the middle of his life, he had a long night stroll with Tolkien, another man too named Hugo Dyson, and they were walking along Addison's Walk. If you ever go to Oxford, visit Maudlin College and walk around this beautiful tree-lined walk called Addison's Walk. And as they walked around and around late into the night, they were discussing this very issue. And, you know, Tolkien is saying, Jack, that was Lewis's nickname. Why is it that you love these stories, but when it comes to Jesus, then you lose interest? And, well, it's just a myth. What do I care about some rabbi who died 2,000 years ago? And then Tolkien said the words that changed Lewis's life, and I would argue changed the 20th century. He said, Jack, did you ever wonder? Maybe the reason that Jesus sounds like a myth is that he was the myth that became fact, the myth that became true. And that changed Lewis's life. About a week later, Lewis embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior because he realized that, wait a minute, how is it possible that this same myth, this same yearning, this same desire pops up all over the world? It only makes sense that the creator who created all of us put that desire in all of us. And if that's true, doesn't it make sense that when that God enacts historically his salvation story, that he will do it in a way that lines up with the pagan yearning? Because, Brett, all Christians understand that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets. But he was more than the Jewish Messiah. He is the savior of the world. And so I believe, as did Lewis and many others, that Jesus not only fulfilled the law and prophets of the Old Testament, he fulfilled the highest yearnings of the pagans. And it was that, that beautiful literary moment that not only brought Lewis back to faith, I mean, you know, the young faith, but really made him a Christian. It also allowed him to reaccess his love of myth and archetype and legend. Because you see, when he was an atheist, he was starting to adopt this modernist view of, we got to throw out the Middle Ages. We have to throw out all these myths and legends and fairy tales and be you know, rational and logical. And so I love this story, Brett, as an English professor, because sadly, there have been a lot of Christians in the 20th century who, when they became believers, felt they had to throw out all of that magic and fantasy and Harry Potter stuff. Not Lewis. It was his Christian faith that allowed him to re-access his wonder and imagination and love of virtue. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. 
Valentine's Day is coming up, and if you're looking for a gift for that special someone in your life, check out Urban Stems. Urban Stems delivers modern bouquets, unique gifts, and stylish plants next day nationwide. They make it a priority to work directly with Rainforest Alliance certified farms and believe that a hands-on approach is the best way to guarantee only the freshest flowers are picked every day. Their Valentine's Day collection is curated with romance and friendship in mind. Every bouquet is designed in-house and on-trend. Every Urban Stems delivery includes a personalized note for your recipient, thoughtfully designed packaging, and a 100% happiness guarantee. Their bouquets range in flower variety from seasonal favorites like lilies and tulips to the go-to favorites like roses. Urban Stems also offers dried bouquets for a long-lasting unique gift for Valentine's Day. Take your pick from a variety of bouquets, plants, gifts, and floral subscription options at urbanstems.com. Shop at urbanstems.com and use promo code MANLINESS15 for 15% off your purchase plus free shipping. That's urbanstems.com, promo code MANLINESS15 for 15% off your purchase and free shipping. Are you ready to establish your online presence but not sure where to start? Look no further than Squarespace. Squarespace empowers the dreamers, makers, and doers of the world by providing the tools they need to bring their creative ideas to life. On Squarespace's dynamic all-in-one platform, you can build a website, claim a domain, sell online, and market your brand. Squarespace's products combine cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your online presence. If you're intimidated by the idea of launching your ideas in the world, Squarespace's templates take out all the guesswork and make it seamless. And once you're out there, you can use Squarespace's analytics to gain powerful insights about your site. And if you ever have questions, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help you. I've used Squarespace over the years for one-off projects when I need to get a website up fast. Super easy. Got it done in like 10 minutes. It's time to turn your dreams into reality. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash manliness and code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Yeah, I want to dig into this idea a little bit more because this idea of embracing myth and story, it was important to Lewis not only in the Christian context, but in the more universal context of seeking the virtuous path in general, uh, which is, Lewis called this virtuous path, he called it the Tao or the Tao. And we had your colleague, Michael Ward, on the podcast a few months ago to talk about the book where Lewis delves into the Tao. It's called The Abolition of Man. This is a philosophical work. It's not fiction. It's not apologetics. And in the book, he's making this universal philosophical case that there's a universal moral order that he calls the Tao. And he says, if we start to step outside this moral order, you start to become less human. Hence the title of the book. It's The Abolition of Man, right? Humanity gets abolished. Does Does this theme of stepping out of the moral order making us less human. Does this pop up in Lewis's stories and fiction? It really does. But it's in the abolition of man, but it's all these different places. See, Lewis understood that there is a universal law code. We may want to deny it, but we know that what he called the Tao, the the universal moral, ethical, cross-cultural code, it is there and it's written in our conscience. And you know what? You know, again, in some ways, Europe was even more secular, liberal in the center in in, in the middle of the 20th century. And yet, even though so many of them were relativists, we still had this thing called the Nuremberg trials. And that's when they put the Nazi war criminals on trial. Now, Brett, think about this. The only way you can have something like the Nuremberg trials is if you are accepting, whether you realize it or not, number one, that there is a real good and evil out there. 
that's not just tied to one culture or another, that there is a real ethical code of right and wrong. Number one, that you must believe that the Nazis knew that code and still broke it anyway. Now, if you could convince me that the Nazi criminals did not know they were doing wrong, they would not put them in the prison. They would have put them in an asylum, right? You understand, they would have been innocent by reason of insanity and they would have been institutionalized. They wouldn't have been let free, right? But we need to understand that people know the Tao exists. Here is my simple definition of the Tao. The Tao is the way you expect other people to treat you. We all know that it exists, but we try to push it away and not listen to it. Here's the problem as Lewis explains it, and he's borrowing from Plato. Plato talks about there's three parts to our soul, and he links it to our body. There is the head, there is the chest, and there is the belly. The head represents rational man, the side of reason, the side that wants to do what is right. The belly is the visceral, appetitive side, the the side that says, I want, I want, what Freud would call the id. Now, in 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 a direct fight between the head and the belly, the belly is going to win every time. It will overwhelm the head. Our lower passions and instincts will overwhelm the head. That's why we need the chest. For the chest, that's where the... how is. That's where our stories of heroism reside. That is the place of virtue, the place of manliness and courage, if you will. And the head can only defeat the belly if the chest comes to the side of the head and fights alongside it, right? Look, if I am a soldier and I am at my post and the enemy is coming at me, Pure logic is not going to keep me at my post. The head alone is not going to do it. I can run through categorical imperative. It's not going to work. You know what's going to keep me there? It's the chest. It is the virtuous action. It is the patriotism. It is the part that makes us human. That is what is going to keep us there. And the way we used to build the chest in children was by telling them stories For us, stories of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. For the Romans, the great Roman Republican heroes like Cincinnatus and these other people that fought and died and laid down, that gave the, you know, the last bit of honor, right? For themselves, laid it down. And, you know, Lewis tries to give us characters in places like Narnia who need to learn the importance of courage and fight. And by the way, while I'm talking, I love that I'm talking from the art of manliness. You guys are doing a great job. Uh, and my son and his friends listen to your podcast all the time. And they're so excited about it. They've started their own group called The New Knighthood, where they get together and call each other to virtuous action. So I'll just shout out my son. His name is Alex and his friends uh, Garner and his friend Josiah. And we need this because If we give up on the chest, if we just become passive people, our head is going to be overwhelmed by our belly, by our base instincts. And Lewis teaches us what it means to be a hero when we read especially the Chronicles of Narnia and see these child heroes I mean, it, it's amazing. There's a, there's one called The Magician's Nephew, where the hero, Diggory, has a mother back home in London who's dying of cancer. And Diggory basically is the nine-year-old C.S. Lewis whose mother's dying of cancer. And when he comes to Narnia, he makes a big mistake and he brings evil into Narnia. 
And Aslan the Lion gives him a chance to make up for that mistake. And he sends him on an incredible quest, like for the Holy Grail. You're going to go to this hidden garden and you're going to pluck me an apple and bring it back. And we will use this to heal the wounds. Well, he gets there and he plucks an apple and he puts it in his pocket. When all of a sudden he meets the character who will become the white witch. And she tells him, this apple you've plucked is the apple of youth. I've eaten it and now I know I will never die or grow old. Diggory, use that apple, eat it, and you will become like me, powerful, and we will rule this land. But Diggory says, no, I'd rather live a normal life and die and go to heaven. He resists that temptation. But then the witch says, okay, if you won't use the apple yourself, take it home with you to London and give it to your mother and she will be well again. Now, I'd be hard-pressed to read an adult novel where an adult has to make that difficult decision. But Diggory knows it would be wrong. He knows his mother would tell him it's wrong to steal and do that. He must do the duty that has been given. And although it pains him, he takes the apple back to Aslan, who uses it to plant a tree of protection that, that protects Narnia for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then from the tree, Aslan plucks an apple, gives it to Diggory and says, bring it home. It will not give your mother eternal life, but it will heal her. We need heroes like that who will do what is right. Not the ends justify the means, but will have courage and virtue instilled in them. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of Lewis's fiction was geared towards educating that chest, like helping people, yeah, develop a chest, you know, have a good response, like have the appropriate response when they experience the good, the true, the beautiful. But as you said, he chose to do this. He could have done, just wrote these essays, you know, nonfiction essays to persuade philosophical essays. But instead of doing that, he chose, you know, children's stories like Narnia, sci-fi stories in a space trilogy. He embraced Nordic myth. I mean, so why go that route instead of just being explicit and saying, Here's what you're supposed to do in sort of some sort of philosophical treatise. Because throughout history and including the Bible, stories have been used to instill virtues. We all love story. The meta narratives, they call it the great story of, you know, creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, and glorification. And Lewis understood that when you use a story, you are speaking to the whole man. You need the whole person, rational and emotional, logical and intuitive. We, we, I mean, Jesus taught by telling stories, what we call the parables, because we identify with the story and we live in the story and it becomes a life lesson that is incarnated in us. You know what? A lot of homeschoolers use a book called The Book of Virtues by William Bennett, who used to be the, the, the head of a secretary of education. And that was a great book, The Book of Virtues. But the funny thing is, if Bennett had written that book 100 years ago, people would have been like, duh, we know it. But no, by the time we get to Bill Bennett, our civilization has forgotten that you build up a chest by telling stories. And so he wrote that book and he took the virtues like courage and he tells stories, some from Greek and Roman mythology, some from the Old and New Testament, some from ancient history, Rome, some from American history, some from legends. And because it's through the stories, we not only learn how to embrace virtue, but it also teaches us how to avoid vice. Brett, 
the best way to teach your children the dangers of lying, you can give them a philosophical treatise on lying, or you can tell them the story of the boy who cried wolf. I told my son that story many times, and I remember that story being told to me. And that story has taught me the danger of lying more than anything else, because it's in a story with real characters. It's not just an esoteric, abstract thing. Lewis is making it real and making it concrete. And something people don't often don't appreciate about Lewis and Tolkien is that these guys, they sort of rehabilitated children's literature. Before that time, children's literature was looked down upon as sort of lowbrow, you know, Dick and Jane type stuff. Right. These two made it into a legitimate literary genre. They did. And it's very important. Now, it's important to realize that when they were born, if you go back to, you know, 1890s, back then was a golden age of children's literature. People did take it serious back then. That's the age of uh, Roger Kipling's the, 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 the Jungle Book. It's the time of Beatrix Potter. It's the time of George MacDonald's Beautiful Stories. It's the time of Alice in Wonderland. It's the time of Wind in the Willows. I mean, this was a golden age. But once you get to World War I, and you kind of mentioned this before, but people start becoming jaded and cynical. No, 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 no. All of that fantasy stuff, that's for kids. And Tolkien had this wonderful line. He said that old genres are like old furniture. When they go out of style, they put them in the nursery. And this is what happened. Suddenly, study, you know, I mean, look, some of the some of the great literary masterpieces from Dante's Divine Comedy to The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer to Gulliver's Travels. I mean, they're all sort of fantasy and if you want to call it sci-fi, but they're also for adults as well as for children. Uh, Tolkien and Lewis said a book only worth reading by a child is probably not worth reading at all. But people gave up. Nah, it's cynical. We need to be serious. None of this silly play acting. Lewis and Tolkien one day were taking one of their famous walks, and they were complaining that nobody was writing the kind of books they liked to read, that crossed over between adult and child and fantasy. And then Lewis looked and said, you know what, Tollers, that was his nickname, you know what, Tollers, it looks like we're going to have to write the kinds of books we want to read. So they did it. Okay, so storytelling is a for Lewis is a, an important part of educating the chest. Another an important part of educating the chest is looking to the past and learning how to appreciate it. Yes. And people often forget that besides being a fiction writer and a Christian apologist, Lewis was one of the foremost experts on medieval history. How did Lewis's deep understanding of particularly medieval history contribute to his idea of educating the chest? He, he liked to call himself a dinosaur, right? an old European who still loved and honored those values. Again, those values of courage. And now Lewis admits, he says, you know, there are some things that we do better than them. But if we stop reading the past, if we stop learning from the Middle Ages and even the Renaissance and whatnot, then we're putting ourselves in a little box. But if we can allow the, the clean air, the breeze, the sea breeze, he called it, that's blowing through all the centuries to learn us, then we will allow the middle medieval people to remind us of what we've forgotten. So yes, in some ways, we're, we're more tolerant than the old time, but they were far more courageous. They were far more chaste. They, were, they understood duty. So yeah, there's some good things that we do today, but 
we have we have started to sort of demonize the past and we refuse to learn from them in any way. We have what Lewis called chronological snobbery. This idea that if it's newer, it must be better. If we don't believe it anymore, it must have been disproved. And Lewis wanted to go back and revive, crazy enough, chivalry. Lewis said there was something beautiful about the knight in arms, the person who lived by a higher code and lived by a higher standard and tried to be both brave and virtuous and chaste. And he saw something of real value from the time when people sort of understood who they were and took glory in that and and took glory in the simple things in life. When money was not the be all and end all of life, when they respected traditions, when they celebrated the sort of cycles of life, this is something we miss. At least the Catholics and the Orthodox as well have, you know, a sacred year, a sacred calendar with you know saints days and everything but that's even being lost but in the middle ages they had an understanding of the sacred year of the feast and of the fast uh, they understood that that time was sacred and you know there was a spe- you know it wasn't that long ago that there were certain foods and fruits and vegetables that you could only get at a certain time of year now we can get anything we want anytime we want and we've lost a sense of the specialness and holiness of the seasonal cycle. And that's something Lewis learned from the medievals as well. So Lewis found much to emulate. And one more thing I'll add too, in the Middle Ages, they read their own great books, going back to the Greeks and Romans, but they read them in order to learn from them. In our modern secular universities, even some of the Christian ones, they read ancient books so they can feel superior to them and think how much more enlightened we are. No, no. Back then, when they read Dante, or they read Virgil, or they read Homer, or they read the Bible, they were at the feet of it, and they tried to learn from it how to be a better person. So all of these things Lewis kind of learned from the Middle Ages and wanted to bring into the modern university. Well, and how does he suggest overcoming that chronological snobbery? Because as you said, you know, Lewis would admit, we, yes, there's some things we made progress in. So how do you overcome the tendency, well, well we're, we're better in this way, but still try to learn from the past? First of all, it takes humility. And another way to do it, and this, this is how Lewis puts it, and I love that. He says, rather than study the medieval knight from some sociological or anthropological perspective, why don't you try putting on his helmet and look at the world through his visor? In other words, let's extend our sympathetic imagination and try to see the world from their point of view. And we have really lost that today. People, all they want to do is judge the past and cancel culture and all of that sort of stuff. And they refuse to extend any kind of humility or attempt to, again, see it from their point of view and understand it. So this is why we need to read what they wrote and study and not just read about them, but go back and read the primary material. Now, most of us don't know Latin or Greek anymore. You can at least get a good English translation and read it. Okay, Lewis would have preferred the original languages. Okay, but that's okay. Let's read it and discuss it. And be willing to maybe even change our belief and our activity because of a great book that we've read. Because Screwtape, the devil, says, 
the what they've done in, in modern modern world is instill the historical point of view. And what the historical point of view is, is when you read any ancient book, you ask all sorts of questions about it, but you never ask, is what the ancient author wrote true? So besides looking to the past, besides storytelling, another way Lewis thought you could educate the chest was friendship. What role does friendship play in that? Lewis and Tolkien were what I call apologists for friendship. Lewis wrote a famous book called The Four Loves. And the four loves are eros, erotic love, philia, friendship, storge, affection, and then agape or caritas, you know, God's self-giving love. And Lewis made a point in that book, and, and Tolkien would agree with this, that nowadays people talk a lot about storge or affection because we're all romantics and we love that. And a lot of people talk about eros or erotic love because we're all Freudians, right? And we're all into instinct and we're all into, you know, sentimentality. But friendship has been left out. And friendship was extremely important to the medieval and ancient people. Do you know that in Aristotle's book, Nicomachean Ethics, he devotes two whole chapters to friendship. That's more than all the other four classical virtues put together. And Lewis explained that the ancients and also the medievals, they sought friendship as the highest thing. It made us like the angels, right? Because eros and storge, affection, those are things that that were kind of controlled by our instincts. Even the animals have that. But only human beings have friendship. It's something that raises us above the animals, makes us almost like that. And Lewis and Tolkien were always, they were part of a group called the Inklings. And they got together. And, okay, the Inklings were all Christians, but it wasn't a Bible study. It was a literary group where they got together and read out loud the works they were writing, things like the Space Trilogy or, 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 or the Lord of the Rings. And a lot of them, like Lewis and Tolkien, were writing genres that were looked down on. And so by getting together and reading, they were encouraging each other. Now, that doesn't mean they were a mutual congratulations society. They were tough critics on each other, but that's because they wanted them to, to be better. And that friendship gave them the courage to stick out in an age that would beat down the things that they believed in. So we need friendship. We need, like my son Alex, the new knighthood. We need groups that will bond together. Well, Lou, this has been a great conversation. Uh, Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, the best thing is go to amazon.com and type in my name, Louis Marcos, L-O-U-I-S-M-A-R-K-O-S. It's a Greek name. And go to my Amazon author page. I've got 22 books on my Amazon author page. Some of the ones from what we're talking about today, people will enjoy Lewis Agonistes, how C.S. Lewis can teach us to wrestle with the modern and postmodern world. One that I really enjoy is called On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis. One of my newest ones is called The Myth-Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. But I got a lot of stuff about Lewis and Tolkien, a lot of stuff about literary criticism and literary theory, but it's all undergirded by this desire to seek after virtue. Also, if you go to YouTube and type in Lewis Marcos, I've got a YouTube channel. I've got a lot of free videos that I put up there if you want to look for them. And uh, again, we need to to take back the culture. We need to take back our friendships. We need to learn how to be good friends. We need to learn what it means to be courageous. And we need to not focus everything on presidential politics. We need to make changes in our local community. And we start by building fellowships 
that will help be salt and light in the world. All right. Well, Lou Marcos, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Had a great time. My guest today was Lewis Marcos. He's the author of several books on the life and works of C.S. Lewis. He's also the lecturer of the Great Courses course, The Life and Writings of C.S. Lewis. Check that out. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash educating the chest. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles from other years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind tonight to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.